you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12? We're back in the book of Matthew. I was just... Uh, Doreen was talking to me last week about the fact that I went down to the EU church in Motherwell to take a service for them for they have no minister or pastor at the present time. And Doreen said, you'll never manage this. We get five hymns, three prayers, an offering, a benediction and a sermon in an hour. How was that? <laughs> <laughs> That's usually just... Who said that? That's usually just my introduction. Anyway, on to the study. We saw in chapter 11 where, in some measure, the religious establishment and the government in Israel started to rebel against Jesus. They started to put against false accusations. They accused him of being a son of Satan. They accused him of being a, a sinner. And that was probably one of the worst things you could say to a Jew at that time, that you were a sinner. Um, because they thought they were... They were the people, they were bound for heaven irrespective because God had chosen them. They called him a wine-bibber and a drunkard. They called him every other name you could think of under the sun. And then suppose in some measure, if I were to, call, if I were to tell you every name they called him, I would probably start to have to get obscene about it. And that. But that's the depth to which they hated Jesus. That's the depth to which they, they stretched it. And of course, we see in... And in the whole of Matthew, the Matthew's Gospel presents Jesus as their king, as the king of Israel, as this son of David, this son of man, this Messiah. And the, the people are delighted. They're being healed, they're being blessed, they're being told that all these man-made regulations that, uh, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the ruling parties bring on them, these are not from God. God has given them the law, yes he has indeed, but he's given them a way past the law and their Messiah. Matthew presents him as the king of Israel, and of course, that being the king of Israel, he presents him as the lion of Judah, the great lion of Judah who would come, uh, that's another messianic title by the way, the lion of Judah, who would come and rescue Israel from their troubles and their woes. And of course Israel at this point in time, when they thought about that type of Messiah they were thinking about, as I've said before, this kind of character on a white horse who was going to come with a great army and get rid of the Romans and set up a, a kingdom there within Israel. But this rebellion about Jesus would eventually lead to his death. But right at this point in time, at the end of chapter 11, it's beginning to get to that place where it's just outright hatred for Jesus. So at the end of chapter 11, I don't know whether you noticed, but he now speaks to the individual and not to Israel as a nation. He says, Come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So he's, he's given the people as individuals an opportunity to come and to enter into some sort of rest. Now the religious leaders of the day would not, they would have accepted that. They would have come out with this, I don't need this rest. We have our Shabbat. We have our Sabbath. We have a day of rest. Why do we need rest from you? Why should we have to come to you to find rest? 
problem was that the Sabbath had become far more than a day of rest. And this is something that we're going to look at in this chapter 12 as it comes up. The Talmud is a, is a book that the Jews have and it's a written down version of the oral traditions of Judaism. It's broken into two parts. There's the Mishnah, which is basically the law of God. And there's the Garma, which is basically the interpretation or rabbinical interpretation of the law of God. So you've got this huge book, 6,000 and odd pages, over 500 chapters in it. And yet 24 of those chapters are specifically to do with the Sabbath. I mean, if you wanted to, if you wanted to trip up, there's no problem. There are that many rules and regulations governing the Sabbath here that it would be just impossible to keep them all. For example, you were never allowed to carry anything heavier than a dried fig on the Sabbath. Now, I don't know whether you've ever seen a fig. It doesn't weigh very much and when it's dried it weighs even less. It's probably 95% water so when you get a dried fig, if you had it in your pocket you wouldn't even know you had it. Women, you guys in here at the moment, no mirrors, no mirrors on a Sunday. That's it. And the reason that they gave for that, the rabbinical interpretation of that was that if women were allowed to look in a mirror on a Sunday, they might see a grey hair and want to pluck it out. And therefore that would constitute doing work on the Sabbath. So therefore mirrors were banned. How does that grab you? And you weren't allowed to have a bath. No baths on a Sunday. No baths on a Sabbath, sorry. Lest some of the water for your bath spill out onto the floor and you would have to clean it up and that would be considered to be cleaning the floor and that would be considered work. You're only allowed to walk 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. That was as far as you could walk. But people got around that. But the day before the Sabbath, they would join a piece of rope to their house and a piece of rope to somebody else's house or maybe their son's house, which was maybe a mile away. And as long as those two houses were joined by something physical, they were considered to be the same house. So this is how they kind of got around these things, you know. So on a Sunday, as long as you were hanging on to that rope, you could walk as far as you liked. And then once you got to your son's house, you could go another 3,000 feet beyond that because that you were never actually considered to be out of your property. I mean, it becomes ludicrous, doesn't it? You weren't allowed to tie a knot on a Sunday. The only knot you could tie was a woman was allowed to tie her girdle on a Sunday. So if you wanted to carry a bucket, you tied your wife's girdle to the bucket. <laughs> Honestly, this, this is what... This is the craziness that it descends. And there was 24 chapters of it like this. I mean, maybe five or six hundred pages, all to do with the Sabbath and the Sabbath law. And on and on went the regulations. So it wasn't a Shabbat, it wasn't a rest. It was a day full of anxiety and worry. Am I doing this right? What if the rabbi sees me picking up this bit of dirt off the floor? Yeah, in Hebrews chapter 4, I believe it was Paul that wrote it, but I'm prepared to accept that it might not be. He says in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 2, For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, <clears throat> just as they did, that's the Israelites. But the, mes the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. For if Joshua had given them rest as he entered the promised land, God would not have spoken later about another day 
There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Psalm 95 speaks of Israel in the desert when they'd left Egypt and of course when they sent out the spies into the promised land and, and ten of them come back with a bad report and two come back with a good report. And these were the only two, Caleb and Joshua, who were allowed to live of that generation, this rebellious generation. And God said of them in Psalm 95, they shall never enter my rest. Now he was talking about the promised land at that point in time. But there's more to it, there's a deeper meaning to it than that. Because he's not just talking about the promised land, he's talking about believing God. That the only way we can find rest is to believe in God. And today if you hear his voice, do not reject it. That's all out of Psalm 95. So this, this Shabbat, this rest that God wants us to have. The Israelites may have looked upon it as being the promised land, may have looked upon it as being a place. And they may indeed and still do look upon it as being a day, the Shabbat. But a day still to come, it says in Hebrew. It's not, it's, not a, it's not a holiday, it's not a vacation, and it's not a location. It's a rest in God through Jesus Christ. He is. If Jesus would say the very thing to you today, if you can receive it, if you have ears to hear it, believe it, that Jesus is our Shabbat, our rest. That the rules and the regulations, although we should be taking a day's rest in a week because it's good for our body and it's good for our soul, but it should never be a, a rest in that you're worrying yourself sick about what you're doing or what you're not doing. And so, in some measure, that's what Jesus was trying to say at the end of chapter 11. Come unto me, all you who are weary. Let me read you this portion from Colossians 2, uh, Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So all of this that the Jews were making, turning into a God literally at the time of Jesus, it was basically a shadow. We don't have to keep rules and to struggle to get God's blessing. Just believing in Jesus is enough. It's enough. Abraham believed Jesus and it was credited to him as righteousness. That was all that was required. He had to believe. And you know, when we talk about these things, suppose I came home and one night and, you know, you did these slow motion pictures on the television and Doreen's running down the path in that slow motion way, you know. <laughs> desperate to welcome me home. And her son's at her back and her shadow's cast along the path. And suddenly I jump down and I start kissing the shadow. People would think I was crazy. I'm worshipping a shadow. When I've got the real thing stood in front of me. And that's exactly what Paul was talking about here. That these things were just shadows. We're, we're worshipping things that are, that are not required. We have the real thing standing in front of us and we can't see it. Because we're so tied up. Or he was saying to the Jews, you're so tied up in your regulations that you can't see. But if you come unto me, I'll give you rest. My burden is easy and my yoke is light. And so we get to chapter 12. In the EU last week, that would have been me finished, but that's me just finished the introduction. <laughs> so how do, we, 
How does Matthew put this down and how does Jesus show this in action? We see this in chapter 12 because chapter 12, a lot of it is about the Sabbath. This Shabbat. You know, we always talk about it. On Friday night at the Israel prayer meeting, we talk about the, uh, the Shabbat Shalom. You know, the peace of the Shabbat. But Shabbat means rest and Shalom means peace. So maybe they're trying to tell you to rest in peace. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're trying to tell Jesus, you know. Anyway, here we are, Matthew chapter 12. So he's just said these things. He's come out with us, Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The leaders understood what he was saying, but they were not happy about it. And so at that time, at verse 1, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 23 in the Old Testament tells us that once a farmer had, had reaped his field, once he had taken the grain in, he was not to take the edges, he was not to take it all. He was to leave the edges for the poor and for the travellers. And, you know, in that day when travellers were travelling, there were no real roads per se. There were paths in between fields and in between mountains. There was no sort of M8 or whatever. Neither was there any sort of McDonald's or chef, you know, little chef or stuff like that. So if you couldn't carry enough food for your journey, then you were reliant upon gleaning from the fields that you passed. And so on the Sabbath day, Jesus was coming up through the field and and his disciples were breaking the heads off the corn and they were rubbing them, getting rid of the chaff and eating the grain. And the Pharisees said, what they're doing is unlawful. Because basically the Pharisees said they were, they were reaping because they took the grain. They were winnowing because they shucked the, 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 the corn. And then they were preparing food. And you weren't allowed to do that on the Sabbath. Getting stuff ready for you to eat. And... You know, when we see that this, some people get a bit confused with this, when we see what's happening here in this field, Jesus is not allowing his men to rob. They're not stealing. This stuff is put there specifically for people like Jesus who were travelling, or the poor people. He may not have been the only one in the field. In fact, if the Pharisees caught him, they must have been in the field as well, somewhere. So why were they in the field? Anyway... He's using God's good law. The Pharisees were using God's good law for bad, and Jesus was using it the way it was intended. That men are more important than a few handfuls of grain. The Pharisees were there and followed him about like a monkey on his back for all the days that he ministered, basically to find fault with him. And you know, sometimes... We manipulate the rules and the regulations to suit ourselves. And the Pharisees did exactly that. They, they manipulated God's law to suit their own purposes, that they could look holier than thou. You know, manipulating things like that always reminds me of the story. A 17-year-old boy wants to learn to drive, wants his dad to pay for the lessons. Dad, I want to learn to drive, but I haven't got any money. Could you pay for my driving lessons? His dad says, well... I'll do that, but there's three conditions to it. He says, one, come May, you're going to have to have much better grades at your school. 
I want to see an improvement in your work. Right, Dad, I'll do that. Secondly, I want you to come down here every day with me and read the Bible. She says, right, Dad, I'll do that. She says, and thirdly, as I constantly tell her, David, I want you to cut your hair. And uh, he says, right, Dad, I'll do that. So off he went, and Julie, the exam time passed, etc. So he came back to his dad and he says, right, Dad, I'm ready to start my driving lessons now. He says, well, your grades are good. He says, so that's you passed the first part. That's all I asked of you. He says, and you've been down here every day reading your Bible with me. He says, that's two, two out of three. He says, the last thing you have to do is cut your hair. The boy said, well, what's cutting my hair got to do with it? I mean, cutting my hair's not really anything to do with whether I pass my driving test or I don't pass my driving test. And then he got a wee bit of inspiration. He says, by the way, he says, Jesus had long hair. And so did all his disciples have long hair. So why can I not have long hair? And his father said to him, yeah, Jesus did have long hair. And his disciples had long hair. But they walked everywhere. <laughs> so you can't bend the rules to suit yourself, you know. If you come in and make the rules, and you make a pact with the rules, then you're governed by it. And, so, and that's exactly what the Pharisees did. They made up the rules to suit themselves. They took God's law and they twisted it. And they made it something that it wasn't. And Jesus answered them. When they told him that they were finding fault with him, he answered them at verse 3, Haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. This is Jesus' quote in 1 Samuel 21 here. David, when he was running away from Saul, if you remember the situation with, with Jonathan, when Jonathan fired the arrow beyond the rock where he was hiding, and David had to flee for his life because Saul was determined to kill him. And so he went to Ahimelech at Nob, the priest, and he came in to Ahimelech and he said, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm looking for some food and I'm looking for a sword. And Ahimelech says, well, Why are you here on your own? And he said, Oh, well, you know. Saul has sent me such a secret mission. Such a, it was so urgent that I, I never had time to pick up any bread or a sword. How the deception comes into it. And you know, these loaves that they bake, I don't know whether you're aware of it, but they could be up to 12 kilograms in weight. It's huge loaves. One for each of the tribes of Israel, baked every week and set up on the table of showbread as an offering unto the Lord. And of course, it was supposed to be there and only eaten by the priests. And we can presume because Jesus brought this up at this point in time that the Jews would recognise that David had done this on a Sabbath because the whole thing is, is centred around the Shabbat, the Sabbath. And Ahimelech gave him the bread and he gave him the sword of Goliath and he left. Now why would he do that? Because people are more important than ceremony. If we can do something for somebody when it means disrupting a ceremony or not taking part in a ceremony or some sort of religious habit, then we do it. If, you know, the, the Jews of the day were told that they, and they still practice it today, that they don't produce food, they don't prepare food on the Sabbath. They prepare it before, or so they say they prepare it before. But from my um, first-hand observation in Jerusalem, when the Sabbath finishes about half past six on the Saturday night, because it starts at half past six on the Friday, they go from evening till morning sort of thing. 
As soon as half past six is passed, they're out the door and into the hotels so that they don't have to pr produce any food. So somebody else has to produce it for them. So they have a big slap up. And that, that was never the intention that God... God wanted them to rest for their labours and, and not distort the way God dealt with them. It's interesting, this use of passage, because David was a king in waiting. He was to be the next king of Israel. In fact, he was anointed king of Israel, even though Saul was still king. And he was rejected by the people of Israel and had to run for his life. And here we've got the same situation that the man telling the story is going to be the king of Israel, but he's going to be rejected and literally have to give up his life for the people. So he says that to them. That's their first point. That's the first point Jesus made. You know, ceremony is more important than people. David ate the showbread, but there was nothing against that. There was nothing wrong with that, because he was hungry. Or haven't you read at verse 5 that the priests on the Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they are innocent? And they did this because during the week there was a certain number of sacrifices to be given. Morning, mid-afternoon, evening, all to be done by the priests. People would bring their sacrifices, their doves or their lambs or their... Or their loaves of bread or whatever it was they were bringing but on the Sabbath they had to bring twice as many there were twice as many sacrifices so the priests had to do twice as much work on the Sabbath and yet the law declared them innocent because they were ministering unto the Lord and ministering unto the Lord is far more important than any Sabbath regulation or Shabbat regulation I tell you that something greater than the temple is here at verse 6 if you had known that what these words mean, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, you talk about smoke coming out of people's ears. I'm sure it was coming out of the Pharisees' ears by this time. To say that he was the Son of Man and that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. That he was the one who had instituted the rules and the Pharisees were the ones who had destroyed them. Jesus quotes Hosea the prophet here, desiring mercy and not sacrifice. What he's basically saying to the people is, to the Pharisees, don't you know God's heart? Don't you really understand? I've told you that it's not about ceremony. I've told you that it's not about religious order. I've told you, and you still don't get it, it's about relationship. It's not religion. And that's something that we have to get across. That our Shabbat is in Jesus Christ. Our relationship with him brings that Shabbat peace, that rest that was promised to us. That we can rest in him. So Jesus appeals to what they would recognise. He appeals to King David on the Sabbath. He appeals to the priests and the way they behave on the Sabbath. He appeals to the way the prophets have set out on the Sabbath. Nobody was allowed to be a priest, a prophet and a king all in one person. You could be the king and a prophet or the king and a priest but you could never be the king, the priest and the prophet. And yet in Jesus we find the fulfilment of this. He is our king, our priest and our prophet. He is the one who will bring that Shabbat rest. The Son of Man, the Messianic title, the Son of Man, they rejected him and they rejected him violently. Matthew uses the word here, Christos, as being, in the Greek, 
Mashiach in the Hebrew and it means the anointed one and that's what Jesus was claiming to be I am the anointed one I am the one who is Lord of the Sabbath I am the King of the Sabbath for me the Sabbath was made or I made the Sabbath and going on from that place in verse 9 he went into their synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there and looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus they asked him is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? You know, I was quite taken when I read this because it's interesting that Jesus talks about their synagogue. He doesn't talk about our synagogue or my synagogue. He talks about their synagogue. He was already starting to separate himself from the traditional Jewish thinking. This this synagogue that practiced all these crazy rules was not of Jesus. This was a man-made thing. He entered into their synagogue. You know, and I always think, God forbid that Jesus would say that about our church, but he said it about many churches, and I hope he'll never get to the stage where he says it about our church, that this is their church. It's no mine. You know, this has to be the Lord's place. This has to be his place. Many churches today have turned away from the word of God, they've turned away from God in total. And I'm sure Jesus would say today, I went into their church and was not welcome so we get this man here with a shriveled hand in the synagogue but whether he'd come specifically to see Jesus or whether he was just there because that's where he always was on the Shabbat but the man was probably paralysed a withered arm and he said to them at verse 11 if any of you have sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will you not take hold of it and lift it out how much more valuable is a person than a sheep Therefore it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So when they questioned Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus said, well, if you've got a sheep that falls into a pit, will you not go and rescue it? Will you not go and lift it out? Will you leave it to the next day so that it's, it's drowned in the ditch? And the pointless exercise in pulling it out. You'll go and pull it out. You'll take it as being an exception on the Sabbath to allow you to do that. And you know... We've got to this skewed view of life today that animals at times seem to be more important than people. We're spending thousands, maybe millions on going round the world to save a whale and to burst out greeting because somebody kills a baby seal. And yet many people don't have the heart for the 7,000 that have died in Nepal this week. We would rather give it to a dog's home or a cat's home. We need to get our, our uh, priorities in order. And that in some measure is what Jesus was saying to them. He would go and pull a sheep out of a ditch, but somebody who was sick on a Sabbath, he wouldn't help them. Now this man wasn't dying, but he needed help. The sheep wasn't dying at that point in time, but it needed help. So should we not help? You know, we go halfway around the world to save a monkey. But we do nothing about the 150,000 aborted babies in this country alone. We've had a holocaust since 1967. Up until 2007, in the 40 years since the Abortion Act was brought in, there have been 6 million abortions in this country. 6 million. 
That's the whole population of Scotland wiped out. And yet there are very few who raise a voice against it. But stick a harpoon in a wheel. And I'm not saying you should stick a harpoon in a wheel. But we stick a harpoon in a wheel and it's all over the news. We should look after the things that God has given us to look after. Of course we should. But we need to have a priority in our lives. People are more important than animals. People are more important than ceremony. People are more important than religious rites. We need to be careful of that. One child, I've got this written down here, one child dies every five seconds in this world from a preventable disease. Every five seconds. That's two dead already since I spoke it. Then he said to the man, verse 13, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out and it was completely restored, just as sound as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. You know, my silly sense of humour, you know, I could imagine Jesus saying to the guy, stretch out my hand, and he would say, I can't, I'm paralysed. You know, but he has to, he has to be a participant in this. It's not just that Jesus says, pull out your hand and it will be restored. He says, pull out your hand. He did it. And it was an act of faith. And that's where we have to have that act of faith. It doesn't take much to get God on your side and God working on your side. It's just an act of faith. Just to say, Lord, I believe you. Just as we said right at the beginning. With Abraham and all these other people, the fathers of faith. It's just believing. Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I believe that it will work out. And taking that tiny step. And this man whose arm was withered, he just took that tiny step and he was restored. It's the answer we often give to God, you know. When he said to the man, pull your arm out, stretch out your hand. The answer often is, I can't because it's paralysed. When you act, God will act with you. The power of God is there to help. Do what the Bible says you have to do. And you'll see the miracles of God working in your life. So we get here, when this man had restored his hand, that the Pharisees, you know, they were delighted and they praised God and they thought, isn't it wonderful to have the Messiah amongst us? No. They plotted to kill him. In some measure, you know, the more we move towards God, the more we stand up for Jesus, the more we exercise this faith, it would appear the more that the world will hate us. And I don't wish to be paranoid about that, but the whole Gospels is just full of that, that people will not take kindly to the fact that you believe in Jesus. You can believe in Jesus all you want, as long as you don't talk about him. I remember when I was working with a particular group of people and I said to this guy, I said, I'll pray with you, I'll pray for you. And he said, oh that would be lovely, thanks very much. And I saw him a couple of days later and I says, I got an answer for God about your situation. What? I says, well, if I speak to God, I expect him to speak back to me. Oh, you're crazy. You're off your head. You know, and that's the way people will treat you. Because it's alright for God you to talk to God, that's nice and sweet and twee. But when God starts to talk to you, whole different story. 
So they plotted to kill him. They just did not want this man. How desperate can it be? And the Prince of Peace comes to bring salvation to a nation. And the people that run that nation refuse to accept him. And if that sounds familiar, in this election week, it should sound familiar. Because the Prince of Peace has come to this nation. And the people who run this country have refused to accept him. And in some measure I could say, come next Friday, we'll get the government that we deserve. We may not get the government that we want, but we'll get the government we deserve. And uh, Brian was asking me this morning, he says, could you know do we sermon and who to vote for? <laughs> <laughs> I'll guarantee you that in some churches today there will be people standing up and telling them who to vote for. That's your job. That's between you and the Lord. So aware that, <clears throat> aware at verse 15 that uh, these people were plotting to kill him. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place and a large crowd followed him and he healed all who were ill. And he warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. That's 42. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit in him <clears throat> and he will proclaim justice to the nations and he will not quarrel or cry out. Jesus withdrew across the Jordan out of the jurisdiction of Judea and, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This would probably be around the time when a few months later somebody would come along and ask him to come and heal Lazarus, that your friend Lazarus is sick. This is where he was. He was ministering across the Jordan because his time had not yet come. God would decide when Jesus would die on the cross, not the Pharisees. And it had to be that perfect time. It had to be that three o'clock in the afternoon of Passover when the, when the lamb was slaughtered, when the priest would be standing in the temple waiting for the sun to be in a certain position in the sky and then he would slit the throat of the lamb. And that in some measure is the word that's used of Jesus in the prophecies that he is the slit-throated, the one who would have his throat cut. And at that point in time Jesus would die on that cross being truly the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus withdrew across the Jordan and many followed him. Now, Jesus didn't ask people to follow him. They followed him because they knew what was good for them. They followed him. He didn't try to advertise. It says here in Isaiah, he will not quarrel or cry out. He wouldn't say, you come with me or, or because these people are bad or whatever. He just did what he did. He was humble of heart. He had the Spirit of the Lord in him and he just was attractive in that sense. No one will hear his voice in the streets. And even today we see it. Jesus is not one of these overbearing gods who comes and demands that you worship him. The Holy Spirit will come and attract you to Jesus. What you do with Jesus after that is entirely your choice. You choose and as Joshua said to the people of Israel, choose you this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And then this beautiful bit in Isaiah 42, this was the <clears throat> this is actually the sort of the anthem, a prison fellowship, uh, as it was then. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. 
That was always the thing that we told the prisoners when we ministered in amongst them in Shot's prison. That you're not beyond redemption. That even though you're a bruised reed or a smouldering wick, God will not reject you. One of the main uses for reeds in those days, apart from sort of thatching roofs and stuff like that, but they used them for musical instruments. They used them to make little flutes out of. And they would use them, depending on what size the reed was, how thick it was, how deep a hole was in it, they would be able to pitch it so they would have low sounding flutes and high sounding piccolos and stuff like that. And in some measure, you know, that's what we always used to tell the guys, you know, you can make music for the Lord, even although your reed is bruised. And they still talk about today, even though it's no natural reeds, with clarinets, etc. It's a reed that you use at the end of it to, to blow through. And that's something that, you know, it's not something, it's something that we do to a musical instrument. But if we are that musical instrument, and if the reed is unbruised, then God can blow that beautiful tune from us through the power of his Holy Spirit, that wind of the Spirit, as it just comes and blows through us. That wind that brings joy and happiness. That wind that says, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the smouldering wick. We used to use flax for the wicks and the oil lamps. Flax wasn't much good for anything else because it was too coarse a material. And that's just kind of stuff you would make potato sacks out and stuff like that. you know. But the flax was fine. It burned fine as long as it was completely drenched in oil. I don't know whether you notice when you, when you light a candle, the wick doesn't burn. It's the wax that gets sucked up into the wick by the flame that actually burns. If the wick burned, then it would only last a few seconds and that would be finished. And it was the same with the flax here. The flax didn't particularly burn. It burned a little bit, but not too bad. But it would burn for hours because it was sucking up the oil and just allowing that flame. And Jesus himself said it about us. When I depart from this world, says Jesus, you are the light of the world. Let your lamp burn brightly. <clears throat> if you're feeling this morning that you're a bruised reader, your wick is smouldering. It's smouldering because it's burning in its own strength. It needs drenched in oil. And both of those things, the wind of the Spirit and oil, and the Bible speaks about the Holy Spirit as well, that anointing of the Spirit, that's the thing that we need to bring that reed back to life, to blow that sweet tune for Jesus, to burn brightly for him in this world. And we have to do that until he has brought justice through victory at verse 20. And in his name at verse 21, the nations will put their hope and many nations have put their hope in him. Many haven't. But you know, when Jesus comes back the second time, all the nations will bow the knee. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is humble and gracious. Yes, he is. But we see for this passage, he's forthright and honest too. He won't stand by and allow the word of God or the things of God to be manipulated and to be called something that they're not. Let's learn not to be tied up in tradition or nonsense about the days and the times and the anointings and whatever. Jesus is our Shabbat. So let's rest in him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you and praise you for this good day.
We thank you, Lord, that we can rest in you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that the wind of your spirit just blows through us, Lord. Help us, Lord, not to be the bruised reeds or the smouldering wicks. Lord, fan us into flame. Give us back that holy energy, Lord, that we need to be witnesses for you, whether at work, whether at home, whether walking down the street, Father, that people might just accost us and say, why are you looking so happy? Because I have the rest and the peace of Jesus in me. Father, I thank you that we can go out from here knowing a little more about you than we did when we came in. So be with us, Lord, and bless us this day. In Jesus' name, amen. If anybody